0: or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. So if we return to the timeline from our first session, and these are estimation dates, we are now at about 48 to 50 A.D., And a lot of things are happening during this mid-century, in these couple of years, in a very compact amount of time. The Jerusalem Council, as I said, has convened. Paul has now written the book of Galatians. That is a circular letter, not a book really. Sent to all of those little church groups that he and Barnabas had just established 18 months previously or so. That was their first missionary journey. When they were preaching and debating and traveling. And Paul was also getting beat up and stoned. Not in a therapeutic way. And ran out of town. This letter's audience of Galatians. The Galatian letter uh, was out to Pisidian Antioch. Iconium, Lystra Derby, All of those areas in the Asia Minor. Right before or right after the Jerusalem Council. And about this same time on the world stage. The Roman Emperor Claudius expels... All the Jews from Rome. It is a reference made in the New Testament. And it is a reference made in the historical record. Here's the Roman historian Suetonius. Now Claudius expelled Jews from Rome. Because they were generating incessant unrest. Through the instigation of Crestus. And we think that the phrase Crestus is a... Uh, ambiguous, but at the same time, a Latinized misspelling of Christ. So by this time, 50 AD or so, there is enough controversy within Jewish communities and converting Jews, god, god fears the monotheistic uh, Gentiles, that it's causing such a furor that even it's made its way all the way to Rome and the emperor's had enough of it. And the Roman Empire at this time does not recognize the difference between Judaism and Christianity. What they see it as is just an internal squabble between the Jews. And at the time, they had already made a great many accommodations to the Jewish faith. That the Jews did not have to pay uh, into the worship of the emperor. They had struck that deal early on because of their monotheistic faith. Monotheism is very rare, even by, by this time. The Romans and the Greeks, the pagans, had multiple gods, multiple temples. The Jews were strictly monotheistic, and so that, they were given a break. And then of all this fussing and fighting, the emperor just had no time for that. So he throws all the Jews out of Rome. Um. Some of them were. Absolutely. And it doesn't appear like they rounded them up in carts and hauled them away. It was more of this, get out of here. You know, a condemned exile. And I, I share all this context because this is what Paul is about to walk into on this second missionary journey. As if he wasn't enough of a troublemaker already. Now, when he goes into these Roman towns... He is going to meet people whose lives have been uprooted largely because of him. He is the the main herald taking the Christian faith into Asia Minor, the main instigator of the internal squabbles. Even though the Jerusalem Council has settled things, let the Gentiles in, everybody relax. You know how it goes. The policy up here takes a long time to trickle down to the actual situation on the ground. Uh, So it's very, very turbulent. There's a a growing upheaval as Christianity more and more begins to differentiate itself from the incubator of Judaism. And the question of Gentile conversion is settled, but the actuality of Gentile conversion is not. And it makes it all, all the way to Rome. Questions? That's our context as we get started tonight. All right. Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. We move straightway into a bit of missionary conflict. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So they're going to go back to Asia Minor modern-day Turkey. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. You might remember we talked about that. They landed at Perga in the region of Pamphylia and John went home. Either he was tired, exhausted, This was not everything he had planned for, or he realized real quick that they were about just to get their rear ends handed to them everywhere they went. I'm going home. Well, time for a new trip. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. A few points of interest here. Number one, the second journey is Paul's idea. To be expected, he is now the unrivaled star of the book of Acts. And he is continuing his ascendancy as the leader of the missionary movement. Second thing, John Mark is the sticking point. Remember the first journey. John goes home. Who is this John Mark character? Acts chapter 12 verse number 12 is where we are first introduced to John Mark. He is a part of the Jerusalem church. His mother's name is Mary. No, I don't know which one. There's a bunch of them. Just Mary. Or they would, in the time, it would have been Miriam in in the Hebrew. And while he is currently... On the outs with Paul, he does eventually come back into Paul's good graces. He will be mentioned again, ultimately, in Colossians and in Philemon. And he is with Paul. And in Second Timothy, Paul asks for John Mark by name, quite literally as Paul is on his deathbed. His last, one of his last communications. But of course, what we know about Barnabas is that Barnabas was going to be loyal to someone. That's what we've seen about him all along. Not to mention the fact, and here it is, that John Mark is his cousin. Ah, family. John Mark is considered by tradition as the author of the Gospel of Mark. And so he would go on to become a close associate with Simon Peter, actually. In First Peter chapter 5, Simon Peter refers to John Mark in a very affectionate tone as his son. That's how close the relationship has begun. So while Mark had a stumbling start and abandoned the work, first thing, he comes back strong in a second act. He takes this trip, apparently gets settled into the work. He does quite well. Paul brings him back into the fold, and he would produce the oldest gospel that we have a record of. And uh, I could go on and talk about how Mark might show up actually in the gospel of Mark, but I won't get into that tonight. Uh, A little bit probably... No. No. There are some who say that it's written about 50. Others say it's probably just before the destruction of Jerusalem. It has not been written quite yet. And we can almost guarantee that when he is with Barnabas and away from Paul, that he is actually gathering the necessary information for the writing of his gospel. Uh, A little bit of maybe psychoanalysis here, there would be no Paul without Barnabas, period. They would have let Paul stew in Tarsus till the cows came home. Barnabas is the first one who brought him to Jerusalem when he was a new convert. Barnabas is the one who brought him into the missionary work at Antioch. Barnabas is the one who goes with him on his first journey Barnabas is the one who brings him back to the great Jerusalem council. There is no Paul without Barnabas. Not Paul as we know it. But I think we have to admit that now there might not be Paul as he grew to be had he and Barnabas stayed together. Does that make sense? Paul has sort of outgrown Barnabas now. He's just too much of his own man and his own character. And so this division is, is almost, as it were, just required. It's a painful separation, but it does double the work, in a sense. Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. That would make sense. Again, where is Barnabas from? Cyprus. They had planted some churches there. Barnabas says, I'll go back there. And then Paul and Silas go back into Galatia. Can we go forward to the map? And you can see see Antioch on the far right hand side. This is printed on your sheet as well. Antioch is the star. This is where their journey starts. Paul's second journey. Barnabas is going to go to Cyprus with Mark, Paul, up through Asia Minor and into Galatia again. And he takes with him Silas. Who is this guy? Silas gets mentioned in Acts. He gets mentioned in the Thessalonian letters. Mentioned in Second Corinthians. And even gets mentioned uh, by Peter in First Peter. And in every case, he is this stand-up, faithful, very quiet partner in the work. He is from Jerusalem and traveled to Antioch after that great Jerusalem council. He takes this trip with Paul. And Paul must have been too much for him too. Because when they get back from this trip, Silas disappears from the book of Acts. Uh, it's hard work as we'll see what what what, what they were doing. So... Context, the opening conflict, and then we're on our way, and even then Paul meets some new companions on this third, excuse me, the second missionary journey. We're now jumping into Acts sixteen one through five. Paul and Silas are making their way across Asia Minor, and they are more or less just muddling through. There is a set of verses there where it says, you know, we tried to go up to to Bithynia, we tried to go to uh, Pisidia, we tried to go over here, and it just wasn't working out. We just couldn't get settled. We couldn't get any real clear direction on what to do. But they do make another stop at Lystra. See that? They go to Tarsus, it appears, Paul's hometown, to Derby to Lystra. What happened at Lystra on their first journey? Anybody want to Remember? Oh, Paul preached there. Mm-hmm. So, so real quick, on their first journey, you got the laser? On their first journey, they come in here, in, like, in Pamphylia, right here. They enter and come around this way. On the second journey, they're coming in by land this time. And so they're, they're, they're doing in reverse order the cities that they first visited. In Lystra, the first uh, trip, Paul is stoned. Again, not in a therapeutic fashion. In such a violent way, they drag him outside the city and leave him for dead. In Lystra. And now he's back. And he goes back, and the product of, apparently, his preaching the first time is a young family with a young man named Timothy. And Timothy joins... Paul and Silas as an apprentice in this work. And we don't know if he ever gets back home. He takes off with Paul all the way around the world. And he's 18, maybe 18 years old. Uh, And Paul does something after all of this talk about circumcision. And all this talk about keeping the, the, the Mosaic law. Paul does something to poor Timothy that you cannot believe. He circumcises him. This is not... A two-day-old in the hospital. This is probably a 17, 18-year-old man. And it's confounding. Why, when Paul is making such a big deal about all of this, would he do that? And Timothy was saying, yeah, Paul, why would you do that? Paul's mother is Jewish. Excuse me, Timothy's mother is Jewish. Timothy's father is Greek. Paul does this To keep the Judaizers off of his back. Because they would accuse Timothy. You're bringing Timothy into these synagogues. This uncircumcised Gentile. And Paul was saying no he's actually a circumcised Jew. It's a great question. Facebook, yeah, maybe, maybe they posted on Facebook. Uh, the the thing is, they would be asked, and they would know. It's likely that Timothy is a Hellenistic Jew. That he speaks, he doesn't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. He speaks Greek. That's going to set them off immediately. Yeah, yeah. This is not this is not a this is not a Palestinian Jew. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to going to ask you to ask no more questions for the rest of tonight. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't, don't repeat it, Jim. Jim. <laughs> it's really funny too. They start going back through, now imagine this scenario too. You start going back through Asia Minor and you're visiting all these cities and, and it's been, you know, a few months, year, two years, and you're going back into these areas where you've had these new converts, and there comes Paul and his new friend Timothy, and who's this guy? Oh, this is Silas. Well, what happened to Barney? You know, where's Barnabas? And he would have to probably have a delicate explanation everywhere he went then. You know, oh, he went south. You know, he not in a metaphorical way, but he actually went south, and now I've got Silas. He's a great guy too. So there's never, there doesn't seem to be any troubles there. What gets them finally out of trouble and gives some direction out of Asia Minor and out of modern-day Turkey is that wonderful Pauline mysticism strikes again. I told you he was a mystic. He has a vision of a man, a European, a Greek man, a Macedonian, saying, come over here and help us. Macedonia, modern-day Greece, divided there by the Aegean Sea, And so they head off to Troas and Paul says, you know, I got I got got the call from the red phone. Know what to do now. We're on our way. And they're going to cross over into Greek. And I want you to notice something and and you can look at this in, in the text. And I don't know for sure if it's printed there for you. But everything through Acts 16, verse number eight. Is they and them. Yes, I'm going to talk about pronouns. They and them. Everything from Acts 9 forward becomes we and us. Alright? Everything before Acts 19.9 9, is they and them. Paul is being described with his friends, they did this. So and so was with them. And then suddenly, the pronouns change. We made our way toward Philippi. So and so was with us. The author of the book of Acts has now entered the chat and has joined the journey. Luke has come on board. And some commentators believe that the actual man in the vision was Luke. And he is either joining the group at Troas or he's joining the group upon arrival In Macedonia near Philippi. What do we know about Luke? He's mentioned multiple times in Paul's writings, so we know he was a close associate of Paul, and it is Paul who refers to Luke as a physician, a doctor, in Colossians chapter 4. He is most likely 99% certain, the historical record, that he is a Gentile from possibly Syria or Macedonia. The oldest manuscript we have of the gospel that bears his name is about 200 200 A.D. And in its original language, it is the most fluent Koine Greek of the entire New Testament. So with Paul, he, those two men together, they are the best educated authors in the New Testament. Paul as a Hebrew of Hebrews and Luke as a Gentile. Tradition tells us that Luke writes two of the books of the New Testament, the gospel that bears his name and the book of Acts, that is his blockbuster followed by his sequel. And these are the prologues to his two books. The prologue to Luke, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were who From the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind. Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then the prelude to the sequel. In my former book Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And with that, the book of Acts is engaged with what is to come. I don't think Theophilus is an actual person. It's a, it's a combination of two Greek words, friend and God. So he is writing to a friend of God. I think he's writing a circular letter. I think he has produced a letter for the emerging Greek Christian community who have become, they are the God fearers. He's produced this for the friends of God as an entryway to, to learn more about who Jesus was and the history uh, of the early church. Where do we get this? This is the prologue to Luke and Acts. So, this is the first three verses of each of those books. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4, and Acts 1, 1 through 3, respectively, there. No, this was uh, this. Like I said, we have Luke. The oldest copy of Luke's gospel is two hundred A.D. And you know, if you think, well, we don't have the original books. No, we don't. Two hundred A.D. is about as old as it gets with any manuscript from the New Testament. So that's a very good manuscript. So Luke's gospel is in play. In circulation well before 200 A.D. Uh, and then what we have as the New Testament is not fully collected till about 400 A.D. It's a work in progress over, over three and a half centuries. we we'll talk about the Q source later. Very good. We talked about that before. He did. Okay. The the of Jesus would exactly. His ambition was to go. It would appear up through the Balkans, mm-hmm. where where uh, all the barbarian barbarians were. Is what the Romans called them. Into into the Balkans, uh, Ukraine, Russia, all up in that area, and it's it's a, it's a great point. We're going to actually see the crossroads at where that takes place tonight, too, because his efforts once he crosses into Macedonia and gets onto European soil, he still wants to go north. So he wanted to go north up into Asia Minor. And into greater Asia, when he gets into Europe, he still wants to turn. Again, why would he do that? He, he can't yet go to Rome. Why? Claudius has kicked all the Jews out. So Rome is not a place to go set up shop right now. So, well, instead of going so far west, maybe north will be the better, the better path. Mm-hmm. The, the prototypical sermon that we looked at last week Acts 12 I believe it is or Acts 13 that is his sermon so his, his routine is, is very much the same he goes into a city he finds the Jewish synagogue for two reasons Jews are there and the God-fearing Gentiles are there when it says, when you read God-fearing Gentile in the New Testament, we're talking about a non-Jew who is a monotheist that has given up on the Roman gods and the Greek gods and the pagan gods, one God over all things. That's the, and the reason that they join in with the synagogue is the Jews are the only other people in the world that believe that. Everything else about the Roman Empire is polytheistic. So he goes in. He retells the history of the Israeli people. And comes all the way up to the time of Christ. And then that's where he changes the recipe. You keep all those same ingredients. I just want you to understand them differently. And see that a crucified Nazarene is the fulfillment of everything we have been hoping for. And that is his sermon. Mm Mm-hmm. He, I am, that's his opening sermon. As he goes on, when he would stay with a place, stay in a place, obviously those are the exact questions that he would stay and answer. What we find in many of these visits in Asia Minor, is he's not able to stay anywhere very long. Because by the time he gets to a crucified Christ, he's in trouble. Yeah, yeah, they're ready to fight. And you have to, you know it's sort of it's sort of like the problem here simple simple christian declaration jesus is lord now i say that on a sunday morning or i say it in this group and everybody's like yep amen if you say that to someone even in north american society today jesus is lord for them To grasp what that means. Is something like this. Jesus Christ was a man born in Roman Palestine in what is now the first century. Into a Jewish culture greatly influenced by Hellenistic Judaism. And at such time. He was leading what would amount to be by some to be a reform movement of Judaism. However, when he was crucified as a criminal, the earliest believers took that as the fulfillment of the ancient Jewish scriptures. And such built a new faith based on the power of this man that God then brought back from the dead as vindication as the promised Jewish Messiah of all things. So when you say Jesus is Lord, that's, and I use this phrase a lot, the handle on the suitcase. That is just the handle on the suitcase to everything I just said and more. If you're raised in that context, that comes to you in your mother's milk. That comes to you a little bit of spoonful at a time. When you enter into a new culture and are trying to communicate that, you don't do that with a single synagogue sermon you can blow the place up with a single synagogue sermon but that's just the beginning and so paul is creating in a sense something brand new in the asia minor roman world at the time i got to move quick but don't please stop me if uh, if you must you have a smaller map and this is the circle that paul now makes as that he, now that he has arrived in Europe and I'll, I'll talk fast here, but please please stop me. Six major ports of call, six major cities where he stops. Four of these cities have been etched into Christian literature from, from that point forward. He makes stops in Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. cities that he would, of course, write letters back to. He doesn't write letters back to every place that he he stopped. And I think what you'll see tonight is that when Paul stopped somewhere, it was for intentional reasons. He's not just wandering around. He has chosen these cities because of where they are. So I'm going to highlight a couple of these stops along the way. Stop number one is in Philippi. It takes the balance of Acts 16, Acts 16 verses 11 through 40. Luke says Philippi was a, quote, Roman colony and a leading city of that district. And they stayed there for several days. Paul skips two cities that are named on his way to Philippi. Uh, he has his sights set here. Why? Why? Paul is going for the Roman juggler when he goes to Philippi remember all the emperor worship stuff? He's going right at it. So a little little bit of a history lesson. Julius Caesar is assassinated 44 B.C. Octavian, our friend Octavian is the one who jumped up on the divine Julius's funeral pyre when the comet was hanging in the sky and said, oh, there he is. He's ascended to the heavens. He's ascended to the stars to be with the gods. So you can, you can thank Octavius Octavian for the very beginnings of Roman emperor worship. Well, when Julius Caesar is assassinated in 44 B.C., Octavian is going to take revenge against his killers. You remember your Shakespeare. Who are his killers? Ete, Ete Brute, so Brutus. And, uh, and someone named Cassius. So, Brutus and Cassius, they flee east and raise an army. Octavian, do we have the slide for this one? Is it just on, the, on their, their sheet? I would, okay, you just have it on your sheet. I was trying to save, save Garrett some time tonight. Octavian and Mark Antony at this time pursues uh, Caesar's killers and, and comes upon them at the city of Philippi. They've chased them across Macedonia to the sea. And there they engage in battle. And Octavian destroys the murderers of his adopted father, Julius Caesar. There's such a celebration right there. They stop and Octavian releases elements of the legions and gives them early retirement right where they stand and gives them the city of Philippi. So the city of Philippi in the Roman era is founded by Octavian and populated by war veterans of the Roman army. Octavian goes home. Decades later, 20 years later, a group of his praetorian guard, the secret service of the day, his personal bodyguards want to retire. They had been veterans of this war as well. And he sends another contingency to Philippi right that they had lived their entire life virtually in the Roman palace. And when they get to Philippi, they build a miniature Rome. When Paul arrives in Philippi around 50 A.D., a forum mimicking the forum in Rome is being built. Paul would have seen it with his own eyes. And the reason he has chosen Philippi is to go right at the Roman imperialism of the day. He skips the previous cities and goes straight at it. He is a brave or a fool. He is a brave man. And this is an intentional, strategic choice and he, when he would write to uh, the church at Philippi later, one of the great phrases that he uses that we often lift out of context, he says, but remember that you are citizens of heaven. Everyone in Philippi is a Roman citizen. And so Paul is going right at them, right off the bat. That's his foray into Europe. He gets there, guess what else he doesn't find? There's no Jewish synagogue there. Why? If we're going to be a little Rome. When in Rome. So Claudius has thrown all the Jews out. We'll do the same thing. And Paul's first encounter with God fearers Is alongside a river where they had a prayer place. There is no synagogue for worship there. Because they are emulating everything. That is going on there in Rome. And so uh, All of the, the the you know there would have been particularly for Octavian, who would become Augustus, there would have there would have been a great temple there to Augustus. He gave him the city. Uh, Paul goes to preaching, things are okay. He comes upon another sorcerer, a sorceress this time, who has powers over dark powers of some sort and. He has enough of her bothering him every day while he's on his way to the prayer meeting. And he doesn't knock, knock her blind like he did the guy in Cyprus. But he, he essentially performs an exorcism. And now she can't access her dark powers. She's a slave girl. The owners of her have been making a whole lot of money off of her. So they drag Paul into the courtroom uh, because of what he has done. And I'll pick up, uh, let's see here. No, I'll let that go. They throw him in jail, because they've got to hurry. They throw Paul and Silas in jail. An earthquake hits in the middle of the night. They're singing uh, Kumbaya songs, having a fine time. The earthquake sets them free. The jailer shows up and says, that great line, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, you and your whole family. He becomes a believer. And then the next morning, this is what happens. The magistrates want Paul and Silas to leave. Well, why not? The jail's been destroyed by an earthquake now. what do you, you got to do something. And then Paul, you, you want to see how intentional Paul is? Passively aggressive intentional. I'll pick up what he says. The magistrates released him. And the jailer says to him, they want you to leave. And Paul answers, <clears throat> they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And they threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? Nope. You let them come down here themselves and escort us out. Paul could have stopped the beating. Paul could have stopped the imprisonment by simply producing his driver's license. And proving that he is a Roman citizen. Because in Rome, you didn't treat citizens that way. You treated non-citizens that way. One of the things about Roman culture, for as corrupt as it was, if you were a Roman citizen, you had a series of rights that no one in the world at that time had. Paul has access to every one of those. And it appears that Paul goes to the most Roman of towns and takes the whipping intentionally to gain leverage so that he could play this card at the right moment. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Paul is, like I said, he's brave or a fool, but he's not dumb. He's not dumb. This is a very strategic move. Quickly, questions? All right, we're cranking. We're going to keep going west. Stop two is Thessalonica. Acts 17, 1 through 9. Again, Paul passes through two other prominent cities, skips them, doesn't preach in them, doesn't stop at them. Goes straight to Thessalonica. Why does he do that? Well, there is a Jewish synagogue there. Paul would have liked that to be sure. But this seems to be Paul choosing that strategic location. Uh, Russ, back to what you were saying. At Thessalonica, the Axios River empties into the Aegean Sea. At Thessalonica, the northern Roman highway into the Balkans terminates. At Thessalonica. It would appear that Paul has chosen this place because of all the incoming and outgoing sea traffic, because of the major road network. And it's quite possible that he was going to establish an outpost there and then turn his efforts and go into the Balkans. He, this, this is as intentional a choice as Philippi, but for different reasons. This is very much a strategic uh, choice. Paul gets in trouble, his modus operandi, though it takes a few weeks. And the text tells us in Acts 17 that the Jews were jealous of his converts. It's a poor translation. John Crossan, in his uh, excavation and archaeological work, they have discovered inscriptions on ancient synagogues in Macedonia, in what is now Turkey. And it's pretty neat. Uh, If you look at one of Crossan's books, he has the pictures of them here. It's just like the Baptist church I grew up in as a kid. If you give enough money, they'll give you a gold tag to put on something. You know, your family's pew or or the... Right? Right? And it it, it doesn't have to be that. I mean, it's worthy. If you go into any hospital, go to a university, you'll find that wall. You know, where all the donors... You're going to find it where people have given and given generously uh, to support the work. All of these synagogues had that on the outside. You know, Chip gave X number of denarii and here's his name. And there's a list, it's a mixture of Greek and Hebrew names. And so what they're jealous about is not that somebody changed their mind about their religion. What are they jealous about? Money! If they if these people start going over here, you know this weird, decentralized, crazy group. That we're going It's this is starting to hurt the checkbook, and that's what they get upset about. Thessalonica is a wealthy town too, as being being where where it's located. So they 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 get in trouble, and uh, they go after him for that, and then they throw up. Uh, the, the emperor again. This guy is teaching, th- teaching things against Caesar's decrees. and Paul would have known he was doing that so he has to leave town. He goes to a little town south of there or west, southwest of there called Berea. This is neither an intentional move nor a strategic move. It is a move made out of necessity. The Thessalonians are about to kill you Paul. You better go. So he just goes to the next town. Uh, under the cover of darkness, by the way, he has to escape during the night. And the synagogue in Berea is made up of what Luke calls noble attendees. And it is a rare and interesting word that Luke uses. Have you ever heard the word here in the 20th, 21st century, the word eugenics? Eugenics is a, is a bit cringe. It's selective breeding. The Nazis did this where they would not allow certain individuals to have a child because that will produce someone with dark hair or dark eyes and we're looking for someone with blue eyes and blonde hair. That's the process of eugenics. And the root of the word eugenics is the word that Luke uses here for noble. Eugenia. And we would say that these people were raised right. That's what we would say in the South. They are noble. They are of good stock. They, they are made out real quick to show that they are nothing like all these troublemakers in Thessalonica. They welcome them. They disagree with Paul, but they debate civilly. Uh, they're, they're, they're far more, more noble. However, hooligans from Thessalonica come over in a few days. They pursue Paul. And cause trouble for Paul. They cause so much trouble for Paul in Berea. That he has to get on a boat. And go all the way to Athens. 150 miles away. There's so much danger in that moment. That they don't even think that they should travel together. Paul goes south to Athens by himself. Timothy, Silas, and apparently Luke. Remain in Berea. They would eventually come south and rejoin Paul. But even then Paul sends them away from him. Timothy he sends To Philippi, Silas it would appear goes back to Thessalonica and Luke sort of disappears into the woodwork. Maybe he went home for a little while because we go from the we language to the they language again. Luke's checked out for a few minutes uh, because things have just gone, things have gone bad. And Paul goes to Athens by himself. He engages in a rigorous debate in Acts 17, 16 through 33 where he, he is involved in a, deba- in, a, in a debate in Athens that is nothing like anything else in his entire career. And, and he's in a town like he's never been in before. Philosophical capital of the world, the largest passenger port in all of Europe, home of the Greek gods at Mount Olympus, originator of the ancient and modern Olympic Games, home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the foundational seeds Of western civilization and western democracy. All right there. Uh, And Paul gives a speech at the Acropolis. That is a masterpiece of first century rhetoric. I Don't have time tonight. And finally Timothy and Luke would rejoin him there. And then they would in time. Move over to Corinth. Which is as far west as Paul has made it. Questions. While I finish in the last ten minutes here. It is written. It's in Acts 17. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's Paul's sermon about the unknown God. And it, it is, he quotes um, a Stoic and an Epicurean, an ancient Greek poet. He is pulling into his university studies here. He is not in the synagogue. He is in the Greek marketplace, and it shows. And he shows his chops as a public intellectual. They, they, they think he's crazy at first because the Greeks in Athens did not believe in resurrection. So that's the sticking point for them. Uh, how can somebody come back to life after they're dead? Because you, you do realize that, that Plato's very thing, and the Western world is very Platonic, was to escape the body. That's what Plato was all, that's what, was what redemption was in the Greek mind. To, to get rid of this body. And Paul says, Well, you'll get rid of this body, but it'll be reconstituted as a resurrected body. And they were like, quote, what is this babbler talking about? That's the that's the phrase. But he stays engaged with them, and there are some, some conversions there, but not a large church. And now we make it to Corinth. I would have loved to have seen. I gotta be careful saying that when I describe Corinth more, you'll be like, whoa. I would have loved to have seen ancient Corinth. Anybody have you have any of you ever been there to see the ruins? Anyone? We gotta do that. You've seen them? Did you like it? Was it crazy? Wild. Yeah. I want to do that. It's on my bucket list. Let's go. Let's go. It's on my bucket list. So this second Missionary journey takes about three years. Paul spends half of that time in Corinth. So when he gets to Corinth, he puts his roots down. It's not because somebody didn't try to kill him; that happened there too. But the Roman official regarded it as a squabble among the Jewish faith, and he said, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hear this. Just leave him alone. Y'all go leave." Quiet lives. And so that's what happens for Paul. Paul spends 18 months there uh, in Corinth. Car- Paul would spend, up to this time, he would spend more time there than any other city. And over the course of his career, he would write to the Corinthians more than any other group. We have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We know Paul wrote at least four letters to them. He talks about a previous letter in 1st Corinthians. It is lost to history. Then we have what we call 1 Corinthians, which is actually 2 Corinthians. Then he writes some, quote, a painful letter, which is 3 Corinthians that we don't have. And then what we have is 2 Corinthians is Fourth Corinthians. And so he they were a lot of trouble. And he had to write a lot and make several visits uh, over the course of time. And it seems to be... One of the reasons that he wrote so much, and he, isn't this the case, one reason that they caused him so much trouble is that he had spent the most time there, and he thought they have really got it. And as soon as he leaves, they ain't got it. Uh, we have a couple of pictures that I, that I gave you. This is ancient Corinth. And if you had gone to ancient Corinth, We're talking about a town with two seaports, a road to the north, 500,000 people, a giant coliseum. The Isthmian Games were held there, which is similar to the Olympics. It was like the uh, playoffs for the Olympics. If you wanted the Isthmian Games, you got to go on to Athens and compete in the Olympics. The the big claim to fame fame in ancient Corinth, and it's in the bottom picture there, was the Temple of Aphrodite. The mighty Aphrodite. The temple of Aphrodite in Paul's day had 10,000 priestess. And a priestess in the temple of Aphrodite was a prostitute. And there was a Greek proverb of the time that said, It is not every young sailor who can afford a trip to Corinth. It is an m- ancient sin city. If you wanted it, it's found there. Very cosmopolitan, very wealthy, very, uh, very vegas maybe we would say. Uh, very much like uh, maybe Rio this time of year before, uh, during M- Mardi Gras. I mean, it is a wild place. And this is where uh, Paul is in a large enough city, that he can be left alone. He can find enough anonymity in that city and enough diversity in that city that that one or two groups that uprise against him don't have the power to run him out of town. And he has Pauline mysticism. He has a vision while he's in Corinth where Jesus appears to him and says, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. Keep doing what you're doing. And he does that. Uh, For for a year and a half. He meets uh, a couple there. Aquila and Priscilla. The best couple name you'll ever hear. Aquila and Priscilla. We are told in Acts chapter uh, 18. Have been kicked out of Rome. They are Jewish Christians. Who Claudius has kicked out. So they have found their way here. They're also tent makers. Paul knows something about that. So they make a living together for a while. And then finally the team is at full strength. Timothy and Silas make their way to Corinth as well. And it is this happy time. After all the trouble that Paul has had. In Europe. Preaching there. In Corinth. And it is there at Corinth that Paul writes the letters to the Thessalonians. Not quite ready to go back there. But I'll write you a letter. The Thessalonians are the ones that you know chased him all the way out of Macedonia. And then finally, closing the circle, can we go back to the circle picture the small map? And then closing the circle, Paul goes back to Asia Minor, leaves Europe, and lands on the shore there at Ephesus. It's a short visit, uh, just a little time in the synagogue, a sermon or two. They ask him to stay. He says, if God wills, I'll come back. But he felt like he needed to get home. There's a strange reference there that Paul, before leaving Europe, shaves his head. Because of a vow he had made. And that sounds very strange to us. But it was not unusual in Jewish mysticism. It's likely that Paul, when he left Europe, when he left Asia Minor to go to Europe, said. I will complete the work in Europe that God has called me to. And I'm, you know, it's like the old Nazarite vow. A razor won't touch my hair until it's done. So now that he's leaving Europe, he cuts his hair. Uh, He comes back, like I said, to Ephesus. Ephesus will loom large next week in our third missionary journey. And the trio of Paul, Silas, and Timothy take a 700-mile boat ride across the Mediterranean Sea. They land. Let's go back to the big map, if you would, Garrett. They land at Caesarea. Luke says they go up to Jerusalem, that is from the coast up nearly 3,000 feet to Jerusalem. This would have been all brand new for Timothy. Can you imagine a little Greek kid? He's, found, he's, he's made his way all the way back to the city that his mother talked to him about his entire life. And then he goes to Antioch where the, they had started. Three years, 3,000 miles, Paul has now written Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, John, Mark, and Luke by this time are gathering material that will contribute to their gospel accounts. And it is likely that back in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem church, has now written the letter that bears his name. And Paul, restless as always, will be back on the road within a year for the third missionary journey. Questions? That's the fastest cross-European trip you will ever take. They were. So, it's possible that they were converted because of the Pentecost event. You know, there were thousands of people in Pentecost, which is the real birthplace of Christianity, we would say, Acts 2. And it's possible they were in Jerusalem. Or they heard the message from someone who was in Jerusalem at that event. Pentecost was like throwing a rock into a pond. You know, it rippled out everywhere. Good question. Other questions? We have two of the books. Paul talks about a previous letter that he had written to the Corinthians. That letter is lost. To history. So what we read in 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. It's a second correspondence. So we're reading between the lines. Oh, how we, if we wish we had had the first one. We know a little bit more about the trouble that was going on there. But we only have the second one. Then there is a painful visit and a painful letter. That would be 3 Corinthians. Uh, it's possible that we have a portion of that since you brought it up is it's possible we have a portion of that letter inside second corinthians let me see if i made a note maybe he does so 1 Corinthians 5.9, I was reading fast and skipping pages. 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. He's writing to people with the mighty Aphrodite and 10,000 priestess, you know, Context and then and then he then that's then we have what we call 1 Corinthians and then the severe letter is referenced in 2 Corinthians 2 and 2 Corinthians 7 and that letter is lost but it may be collapsed into 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 chapters 10 through 13 could be 3 Corinthians it's just how the these were collected yes sir Yes, yes, we are. Or at least first-hand accounts from visitors. You know, uh, I'm going to go, you know, Paul was in Corinth one time. There's a church here. I'm going to go check it out, and they go check it out, and they're like, oh, my God, I got to get to Paul. And they go tell Paul, you know, a little bit of a, a tattle. but And again, Paul spends 18 months there, and it really hurts him that they're not thriving. And, and we'll, when we get to the end and we'll talk about the different letters and the theological impacts of the letters. What really gets Paul is not that, they, that they're making mistakes. What really hurts Paul is they say to him. Well, we really don't even know if you're an apostle. We heard you weren't even in Jerusalem when Jesus was there. And that just, right in the heart. So they dismiss his testimony. They attack his credibility. And he strains under that. Especially that Second Corinthians 10 passage where he just, he goes on this massive defense and gives a blazing testimony of what has happened. But it's not for the sake of like, uh, I'm, you know, let me tell you my story. No, he's trying to prove something. They eventually reconcile and all that, but it's a painful period in his life. Good, Very good question. If we had all those correspondents, you know, well, I would say if we had all those correspondence, it'd be simpler. But theologians would make that complicated too. It's just that we we get to read, yeah, yeah, we get to read between the lines a little bit. <laughs> you got to go home, okay? You got to go home. That's it for you. No, it's just like somebody said, you know, if if you could, do, if you could, I was asked this question: if you could prove definitively, like. 2 Thessalonians is disputed. 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy in particular, is disputed as an actual writing of Paul. Those aren't leaving the New Testament. I mean, who would have the power to do that? Nobody. I mean, if there was a worldwide church council, we've come to the conclusion that 2 Timothy is not authentic, and we're going to take it out of the Bible. that's That's never going to happen. Yeah, we're we're, we're two thousand years, we're we're two thousand years deep. We can be true to the scriptures and say, this is a disputed letter, and this is why. And yet, our Christian forebears saw reason to leave it in, as useful and helpful to Christian communities. It's just not that. Uh, it's just everybody relax, you know. Go to Lystra, get therapeutically stoned or something. I don't know. Are we done back there? Are we off Facebook? I hope we are when I said that. So. Oh. Barnabas and, and the early believers. I thought you were about to ask me about Derby. When he le- I mean, not Derby, but when he leaves um, Berea. When he leaves Berea, some of the new church take him down to the coast. And stay with him. Uh, he, he he makes he makes a lot of enemies, but he makes a lot of friends too. He makes a lot of friends. All right. I've gone too long, two minute, ten minutes over. I apologize. Next week, Paul's third missionary journey. Look at it real quick. It looks a lot like the second one, doesn't it? A lot of arrows. Paul really the second missionary journey is it as far as groundbreaking. Paul doesn't make new efforts into new locations. He's trying to strengthen and reestablish where he's already been. Because he understands that if the foothold is taken in the most Roman outpost, the most emperor worship, hedonistic culture of the day, if it can root here, it'll go anywhere. So that's what he does. Thanks for coming tonight. You're dismissed.